Thank you for listening to the Well-Managed Hive. I'm your host, Lewis Cobble. I'm an apiary inspector with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Welcome to season one, episode three. I'm speaking with Dr. Katie Lee today from the Be Informed Partnership. We're gonna be talking about her work uh, that she did at a master's and as a PhD student at the University of Minnesota. And of course, if you've made it to season three, you probably already know what our topics are gonna be. Of course, uh, varroa mites and the importance of monitoring. Uh, so I hope you'll enjoy this episode. My guest today received her PhD and master's from the University of Minnesota Bee Lab with Dr. Marla Spivak, and she currently serves on the board of the American Beekeeping Federation. Her research has focused on the parasitic mite varroa destructor, queen health, and other metrics that indicate colony health. For the nonprofit organization, the Bee Informed Partnership, Katie started both the Northern California and Upper Midwest Honeybee tech transfer teams that provide services for commercial beekeepers by assessing colony health, taking samples for pathogens and parasites, and testing breeding stock for disease-resistant behaviors. Her current work is to examine how forage plantings affect honeybee health. Her long-term goal is to conduct research that generates practical information for beekeepers. My guest today is Dr. Katie Lee. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm thrilled to death. And uh, so this morning, I kind of I want to talk about a couple of different, at least a couple of different papers. And uh, of course, you know, my interest is uh, Varroa and monitoring. And as I was uh, thinking about developing this podcast, you were the, the first person that I reached out to. And, uh, you know, I just kind of sent you a message and said, you know, I'm thinking about developing a podcast to talk about Varroa and monitoring. I was wondering if you want to talk about uh, your paper from 2010 and odds ratios. And and uh, you came back with a very enthusiastic, yes, you know, I really want to talk about Varroa monitoring. And uh, so uh, that kind of really, uh, I would say, motivated me to continue the development of uh, the podcast. So uh, thank you for for um, kickstarting this. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, yeah, my, my pleasure. Anytime anybody ever wants to talk about mites and monitoring, I'm, I'm always on board. And I think this is this is awesome. So thank you. Oh, very good. So the, the first one, the first paper I'd like to talk about is uh, a journal article from American Bee Journal in 2010. It was entitled uh, standard sampling plan to detect varroa density in colonies and apiaries. And this was in uh, ABJ in December of uh, 2010. And uh, this, for me, it was a very important and kind of influential um, article. I think I'd been a beekeeper for three or four years at the time. I was over the um, know-it-all phase, you know, that first year or two when you uh, get a couple of colonies through the winter and you go, Oh, this is easy. I'll, uh, you know, nothing to it. Yeah. We and, all go through that. Right. <laughs> right. But uh, fortunately I moved through that within a year or two. And, and when I saw this paper, I was in that phase where, you know, the, the more I was learning, the more I was understanding how much I didn't know. And I had kind of this thirst for more and more knowledge. And, uh, and, uh, so this was, uh, an important, uh, paper for me, and I think it really instilled um, the importance of monitoring, uh, and it helped me um, 
educate other beekeepers and the importance of monitoring. So it was very influential kind of in my early years. This along with, uh, of course, uh, my uh, apiary inspector at the time, Don Hopkins, was also, you know, trying to instill all these lessons into me. And I think uh, both of you did a very good job, and I appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, it, it certainly had, has been a positive influence on me. So I appreciate that. I, thank you. Uh, that's a huge compliment. I think. I mean, that's that's the reason I do research is try to try to help. So thank you so much. Yeah. So I have some comments. I, I was rereading the paper over the last couple of days preparing for this, and uh, it's. I think it's as powerful for me today as it was back then. Kind of the concepts that that you stressed, and uh, so I'm just going to kind of go through uh, the paper, and you can comment maybe as we go. So the introduction was sort of, you know, beekeepers are using miticides once or twice a year, often without even checking to see if they need to. Hey, maybe we should develop uh, a process where they can uh, make good decisions. So uh, that seemed to me like how it came about. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think even if people do treat based on time of year, I think it's just really important to monitor and look at, at mite levels uh, just so you understand what's going on in the colony. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you set out to develop the method uh, and determine the sample size, where to collect the bees, uh, how to get a, a standardized sample size. So you can compare apples to apples and uh, so uh, that was it was basically the the basis of the the sugar shake that we know today, right? Uh, well, yeah, a, a bit. Um, Marion Ellis's lab out in Nebraska developed the sugar shake itself. We just sort of expanded on it. Um, well, we we used it. And we, we like it because it doesn't kill uh, the bees. So right. and it's more approachable for people to use sometimes right. because of that. I agree. So I, I teach a lot of bee schools and, and talk about monitoring. And a lot of new beekeepers are uh, kind of appalled by, at the, at the uh, idea of killing 300 bees in alcohol wash. And so I find it's much easier to, to uh, um, sell the, the uh, sugar shake rather than the alcohol wash. Yeah, yeah, me too. I totally agree. Yeah. So, um, the other thing I noticed in the paper is that we used 954 commercial colonies. So, I guess the point I want to make here is that I feel like very few people understand how complicated honeybee research is. You know, when you're doing research, you want to try to limit as many variables as possible. You know, hopefully you limit all variables except for the one that you're testing. And it's very difficult to do that with honeybees because there are just variables all over the place. And in order to, to do good research, you know, to kind of um, fix that problem, you have to do a whole lot of repetitions. So you have to collect a whole bunch of data in order to start looking for those trends. So you think that's uh, fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's very fair. Uh, I mean, you can have two colonies right next to each other, and they can be completely different. So the bigger the sample size, uh, the more reliable the results are. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that's fair. So that's why we tried to get, um, you know, as high of a number as we could for the, the amount of budget that we had. 
Right. And so, and I think finding those uh, commercial beekeepers to work, you know, developing those uh, relationships with the commercial beekeepers, uh, that, you know, they trust you to work with their bees. That That's an, an important part of it. Yeah. A lot of that came from um, Marla, uh, the head of the honeybee lab at the University of Minnesota. Um, she'd been working for years with the number of beekeepers that we worked with. So uh, under her guidance and then, you know, learning, uh, you know, chatting with the beekeepers is always fun and important um, and just showing them that you're competent and that you're doing interesting research and stuff. So that was actually sort of the beginning of um, my, my really high interest in commercial beekeeping. Yes, yes. Um, so you guys looked at how mites were, uh, you know, not just – um, um, looking for mites in the colony, but also how mites were distributed throughout the apiary. So, you know, does it matter uh, where we sample? Are we going to find more mites on the ends or in the middle? Or um, So how did that go? Um, so we sampled uh, from, yeah, from all over within apiaries um, and then looked at different patterns of uh, you know, a lot, a lot of beekeepers um, say that the ends of the, like if you have a row, that the ends may have more mites mm -hmm. because bees might drift um, and end up with more mites in those end colonies. So we wanted to look at that um, and if those ones actually did have more mites to make sure people concentrate um, or at, at, on sampling those so they can get um, a better estimation of what's actually in the yard. Um, however, we actually did not find um, any any pattern to where they would be, um, so we, we weren't able to really make any recommendations based on that. But um, I know there's some other research that's potentially coming out from Denison Anglesdorp in the next coming years, uh, looking at even more in depth of, of where the mites may be within a yard. Very good. Um... Also looked at the relationship between adult bee infestation and colony infesta infestation. So, hey, if we shake um, uh, six mites from our 300 adult bees, what does that mean, you know, for the rest of the colony? So you guys went pretty deep and actually, I, I think, opened a lot of uh, cat brood to, you know, try to correlate uh, those adult bee numbers with, with the rest of the colony. Yeah, yeah, we did a lot of that. That is tedious work, but it's super interesting um, because so many of the mites are in the brood. So when you're sampling in the middle of summer and you're looking at the adult bees, you really have to account for the ones that you can't see on adult bees that are reproducing on the pubie. So yeah, that was a really important part of the project. It was hard work, but it was it was one of the most interesting parts for me. Yeah, so I, I think it is important to for folks to to um, keep that in mind that um, uh, so in your uh, research you found that about there are about as many mites in the cat brood as there are on adult bees. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. There is one caveat to that that I want to say. We didn't account for drones as much as I think we should have at the time. Um, so there's there's you know they prefer drones. Uh, the mites prefer to reproduce in drone brood because they can make more babies uh, because the drones have a longer time for the development. So I think we should have accounted for them a bit more. But in the worker brood, we found about 50% uh, of the mites in the worker brood. Yeah. And so when you're doing sugar shakes these days, you really uh, uh, need, or not just sugar shakes, but also alcohol washes, you need to think about how much uh, capped brood you have in your colony as you're looking at your results. So if you have 
no, no cap brewed in the colony. Uh, your sugar shake is a very good uh, representation of your uh, mite load. If you have eight frames of wall-to-wall cap brewed, it's you have to be careful because you can get a kind of a false sense sense of security if you have a low mite number on your adult bees because you still have a you could have a lot of mites in that cap brood. So that's something to think about as you're yes. sampling. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of mites that can be in that cap brood. So you can get sort of a you can get a sample back that's relatively low, but yeah, you should be careful interpreting your results and sample again. Um, just to see how many <laughs> how many come up later, uh, because that is something to be very very aware of that they're in there and that they're reproducing. Right. Now, I think that also um, that points to the importance of um, more frequent monitoring, especially when you have cat brood, because things can really change as that brood emerges. So I, I talk to people that say, "Oh, I, I didn't have any I didn't have any mites in my sugar shake in August, so I didn't do anything." And in August around here in North Carolina, we can have quite a bit of uh, capped brood. And those numbers can really uh, change over the course of three to six weeks as we have a less and less capped brood. Yes. Yeah, very, very much so. For up here in Minnesota, from August to September, the numbers can rapidly change. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely see that in the fall. So you guys also kind of um, uh, developed a plan uh, how many bees to uh, sample, where to catch those bees, and also in the apiary. So you guys uh, uh, made a recommendation to sample every fifth colony in the apiary up to until you've sampled eight colonies. Um, and you said, and I think I got this right, that this works for if you have an apiary between 24 and 84 colonies. Is that is that right? Yeah, so that was our uh, sample size for the yards, the, the commercial apiaries that we sampled. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really a recommendation based off of that. Um, and the every fifth colony is just a way to sort of get it more randomized so you don't just sample a single pallet right. or a single group of colonies that are together. Um, just, just to try to get a better distribution of what's in the apiary. So that was for between, so so I guess the yards that you were looking at were between 24 and 84. And so that's what where that number comes from. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So so I do get questions from, from folks, you know, some backyard beekeepers that have two, five, ten colonies on, on how many colonies they should sample, you know, to get a good idea of uh, what their mite load is. And um, what's your recommendation there? If you can, sample everything. Um, and I'm going to give you an example of why. So for this project I've been on, uh, I've been managing about 200 colonies in Minnesota. Um, and I have a, about 27 different yards. I have one yard in particular. Um, they did really, really well for honey production. They were one of my top. There's only seven colonies in the yard. And six of those colonies had uh I think the highest was 2%. Um, and then the last colony had 75 mites. In oh, my goodness. <laughs> so treated exactly the same. This is even after uh, treating them for mites. Uh, why that one was that high? It was, it, was, it was the biggest one in the yard. So bigger colonies seemed to make more mites. Mm -hmm. And it had, because I 
measured the amount of sealed brood in there, it had the most sealed brood in there. But if we hadn't sampled it again and just sampled the other six and missed that one, we would have totally not known that that one was that high. That's exactly so, what I see as well. So I completely agree. I, um, when people ask me how many they should sample, my question to them is, how interested are you in bee health, right? So yeah. if you're not interested in bee health, you don't have to monitor any. You can just write checks for new packages or nukes. If you're really interested in bee health, monitor every colony, you know, every four to six weeks. And, uh, and in my own yard, I have about 30 colonies that I just play with. And I would say that um, I monitor every colony about every six weeks or about six times during the season. And I always find about uh, 10% of them are, are, you know, out of the threshold, sometimes wildly out of the threshold. And uh, so I feel like if I'm only sampling, if I'm only kind of spot checking, that it's, it's going to be easy for me to miss those um, colonies that, that need attention. And if I miss those, that can impact the rest of the yard. So it's important for me to catch those. You know, that's for a backyard beekeeper. But I understand if you're a commercial beekeeper running a thousand hives, you need a good plan like this that can give you a good idea of what's going on. You, you can't sample every colony. Um, so you're going to need a, a, a good uh, plan to figure out how many to sample and, and what you're looking for. So I think that's very important work that you guys did. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I totally agree with you too. Yeah. So you guys also kind of, um, I would say, uh, suggested, suggested treatment thresholds, uh, for stationary beekeepers, uh, at that time. And, uh, your, uh, I believe your, uh, treatment threshold for, this is colony infestation rate. So not just, um, mites on adult bees, but having that correction factor for the mites that are in the uh, cat brood as well. You guys suggested a 10 to 12% colony infestation level as a threshold. And that equals, I think about five to 6% uh, of kind of the infestation rate as we describe it today, you know, just in uh, mites off of 300 bees. So is that fair? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not certain those are good thresholds anymore. Um, and I think it really depends on the time of year as well. Um, I In the spring, if your colony is about to build up um, and you're going to have that treatment win or that absence of treatment window when you have honey supers on and they're harder to access or sample, I think your threshold is a lot lower. Um, I, I mean, based on... Uh, the work uh, for my thesis, actually, I would probably say, at least in commercial apiaries, the threshold would be uh, about 1%, um, because it's really important to get those mite levels as low as possible before they really start to build. I think there's a bit more wiggle room uh, come, uh, like, August when we when we treat up here they can be a little bit higher and they will be <laughs> they will be higher because they've been growing but right. I think the point there is really to get a treatment on early enough so that if you have your if you can clean out the bees from the mites and that they can make healthy bees that'll go into winter so we generally treat um, as as the population starts to fall in August late August yeah so I, I think uh, 
Uh, so I think your thresholds at that time, you know, of basically five to six percent uh, in the adult B sample, that was probably a good number at that time. Although today the number is much lower, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I would agree. We're seeing, I, think yeah. <laughs> I don't expect that those thresholds are going to go up. I only expect them to go down as the mites and the viruses associated with them continue to, to be a problem. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So, um, uh, kind of the bottom line was, I mean, you were uh, really pushing uh, beekeepers to kind of pick up monitoring and and do a good job with it to help us understand, you know, at what levels can uh, can our can our uh, bees stand, and it's going to be variable from region to region and based on your conditions and unless you're out there doing the monitoring it's going to be hard to to know what the, what the safe level is yeah yeah i agree yeah if the more you get in your bees the more you kind of understand uh, what's going on in there i think it makes you a much much better beekeeper yeah i so i i feel like you guys so it was uh, you were a lead author along with Gary Reuter and Dr. Marla Spivak on the on the paper or on the journal article, and I thought you guys did a really good job of of making a case for uh, monitoring, and it certainly has been a, a positive influence on me. It certainly helped my beekeeping, and I and I think uh, others as well. So uh, thank you for that that good work. Uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, it was my master's thesis. I, I'm super proud of it. Um, it was a lot of work, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Man. All right. And then, so that, um, I'm sure there's, there's a, lots of other stuff that happened between 2010 and, and 2018. But the next thing I'd like to talk about is your, uh, thesis, uh, from I think last year. Um, particularly chapter three, where you're talking about, I would say odds ratios, or let me, let me try to, um, this is kind of my take on the, the, um, title of the chapter. What can we measure in the field that will help us predict colony health? How's that? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. And so, uh, it's, let me, Go. Let me tell you how I, what I think you guys did, and you can just kind of take it from there. So you guys collected data over five years or over five B years, so from May of 2012 to March of 2017. You sampled colonies at four times uh, through each year. So once uh, mid-May to late June, uh, once uh, mid-July to late August, uh, once in early September to early October. And again, in from mid-January to early March. So far, mm -hmm. so good? So far, so good. All right. And so what did you guys measure there? And what sort of information did you glean? Okay. So um, at each of those time points, um, we worked with commercial beekeepers. Um, and this is in the upper Midwest. So pre pretty much Minnesota and North Dakota. Um, and then followed them out to either California right before the almond bloom or down to Southeast Texas uh, where uh, there's a great 
<laughs> nectar and pollen flow, um, and they start to rear queens. So what we would do for these beekeepers um, is go out and primarily sample for both the parasitic mite varroa um, and then for nozema as well, um, and then give their results back to them uh, in a report so they can use that data to make decisions. Um, in addition to that, we'd collect other information about the colonies. Um, so we'd look at the adult bee population size is uh, estimate of um, frames of bees. Uh, we'd look at the queen status uh, to see if the queen was there in lane or if something else was going on, the colony was queenless, they were making queen cells, there's virgin queen, drone layer, laying workers, whatever, whatever you might have. Mm -hmm. uh, we also looked at the brood patterns in the colonies and rated them on a scale of one to five. One being really poor shotgun and then five being one that you basically take a picture of. And right, you want to take home <laughs> with you. Text the beekeeper, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then we'd also look for just visually for different diseases and pests. So chalk brood and uh, European fallow brood, uh, hive beetles, uh, signs of parasitic mites within the comb. So looking for that parasitic mite syndrome where the brood is sort of melted um, and evidence of mites in, in cells as well, what we call chewed down brood, where you would see mite feces inside of those cells too. And then looking for varroa on adult bees too. So we'd also look for like sac brood virus and American fellow brood um, and just basically anything that's off in the colony. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that was given back to the beekeepers. Um, yeah. And then so, and then you, so we have all of this um, data to kind of, plow through to try to look for trends and and correlations and and all this good stuff so how'd that go yeah so uh, from working with the beekeepers and from talking to with them and then from following all these colonies over time i had a fairly good idea of what i wanted to look at mm -hmm. um I, I knew mites would be a big one because Varroa is basically the primary reason uh, that we would get called out in the fall uh, for when people were having huge bee losses. Um, so, like, occasionally we'd go out to a yard and sometimes people would be, like, losing up to, like, 70 to 80 percent of their bees. And it would always be Varroa right. in the fall. Um, so I knew Varroa was really, really important in being able to make recommendations for how low varroa levels would need to be in spring in order to avoid that in the fall. Um, and then queens obviously are one of the most important <laughs> factors in a healthy colony. Certainly. If you don't have a healthy laying queen, uh, the probability that that colony uh, will have something uh, go wrong with it later is much, much higher. Mm -hmm. So it's more likely to die if they're not able to successfully uh, replace the queen or if the beekeeper isn't. Um, so I knew I knew those two would be really important. I knew less about how Nozema would shake out uh, because we would sample colonies in particular in May and June, and it, you know, relatively most things would be high, and then the levels would go down over uh, over the uh, summer and then into the fall they would be at their lowest, and then they'd be higher again when we sampled them in January, February, 
and this would be whether or not people had treated with uh, fumagillin or not. So I was, I, I really didn't, that one was less predictive uh, to me. So I wanted to see how things would shake out there. Um, but uh, so that, that's sort of where we started. Oh, and actually, um, so one of my coworkers, Megan Mahoney and I would sort of almost like, we would play this game based on uh, how many signs of mites that we saw in the colonies. Uh, right. To see to predict how many mites would actually be in that sample of adult bees that we took, um, and we got relatively good at it. So I I just wanted to get that out in statistics to see what the odds were that if you saw actually signs of mites, what the probability would be that they would be over uh, kind of this threshold of three mites per one hundred bees. Right. So what what were the signs that you guys were were looking at? So we were looking at uh, if we could actually visually see the mites on adult bees. Right. Because normally they're often under the abdomen or something, and they're very difficult to see. So once you see them, you know, it kind of indicates a problem. Mm -hmm. We would look for deformed wing virus signs uh, in the adult bees. Um, and then we would, so the shriveled up little wings, uh, we would look for what we called chewed down brood. Mm -hmm. So a cell that would be opened uh, and a pupa would be exposed. And then if you looked inside that cell, on top of that cell, you would see a patch of mite feces. Mm -hmm. uh, so a little little spot basically of whiteout looking um, above that pupa. So you knew that there were mites in there. So you knew that they were like in the colony and at least the bees were doing enough where they were sensing them. Um, and then we'd also look for this parasitic mite syndrome. Um, so cells that really, it looks sort of like EFB almost, mm -hmm. but there's signs of mites and the brood is melted and um, you often see a lot of the other signs of mites uh, in there that I just described. So any any kind of stage of that. So those are the four main signs that we would look for. Yeah, I, I, I play the same game myself, especially in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a, yeah. a, a lot of beekeepers, beekeepers will call in uh, the fall and say, I think I have European fowl brood and I'll come out. And I start looking and I see a mite on a bee. I see chewed down brood and I say, oh, you know, we can check this for European, but I'm pretty sure this is we're going to have a high mite load. And, and usually that's how it plays out. So I play the same game. So it, and, yeah. it's, and it's fun, too, I will say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a depressing fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, so how, how, did they, how did your guessing game correlate with mite numbers? Uh, so if you saw a single sign of mites, uh, so if, if, okay, let me start at zero. So if you saw no signs of mites, in the colony, the average mite level in those colonies were about one. Um, if you saw uh, one side of mites, the average level in those colonies uh, were close to five uh, mites per 100 bees. Mm -hmm. um, and if you saw more than one signs of mites, uh, then it was close to eight it, <laughs> mites per 100 bees. Right. So I, I will make the stipulation that even though you might not see any of these signs we did find a lot of variation in zero so we would often not see mite signs and the mite levels would still be high but if we actually did see the mite signs then we knew that they were probably pretty high right so i think i read that even on in instances where you didn't see any mite signs there were zero mite signs still 12 percent of those colonies were above three percent 
Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. So it's important to still sample. Right. Yeah. Good. Very good. And then what else did you find? Um, so one of the interesting things with the mites as well is um, looking at how the odds would change. Um, so if you had, let's say, 1% to 2% mites in May or June when we sampled, um, how high are your odds um, that they would be over that 3% uh mites per 100 bees in August mm -hmm. compared to if you saw less than 1%. Right. So we found um, that it was 3.5 times higher. So even, even at that super low level of 1% to 2% mites, your odds were that much higher that it would be above that threshold in August. Right. And of course, that increased as you increase the number of mites. So if you had over 2 mites per 100 bees, your odds are 6.5 times higher that you would be have over uh, three mites per hundred bees in August. So, All right. So, um, really, kind of underscores the importance of keeping those mite numbers, uh, especially low in the spring, because it's it's only going to get worse. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. The spring, I think, is one of the most important times uh, to sample and treat if need be. Yeah, so I think that's a very important point. Um, I see a lot of beekeepers who they're, they're monitoring. If they have a monitoring program, it might happen in August. And uh, I, th I think we really need to get the message out that uh, while that might have been sufficient 10 years ago uh, these days, I don't, I don't think it's sufficient at all. We really need to kind of start that um, uh, surveillance uh, early in the year and uh, keep after it. And because uh, once those mites get uh, ahead of us, it's, it's, it's hard to, to reel back in from there. So. Yeah, yeah, it really is. The higher the levels get, the harder it is to reel it back. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what, what else uh, came through in, the, in all this? Um, we also found that if you did end up having over three mites per 100 bees in August, that the probability, the odds that you would have uh, what we call the non-viable colony, so less than four frames of bees um, in September, October, was 5.5 times higher than if you had fewer than three mites per 100 bees in August. So we considered a non-viable colony to be four frames or less, uh, basically because that's a colony that's really not going to make it through winter very well. Um, so that also stresses the importance of keeping mite levels low in May and June again, because you really don't want your mite levels above three mites per 100 bees in August, because the probability that your colony is going to be really small and non-viable come the fall is much higher. Yeah, and I think we, I think you guys looked at, um, I think you've already mentioned this, but I want to kind of underline it, colonies that were even maybe a healthy colony but was four frames or less in August or September wasn't really um, productive. You know, it's not, wasn't something you could take to almonds the next year. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that is correct. Right. Kind, of, um, kind of underscores the importance of having good populations going into winter, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's really important because once once they stop making bees, they're not going to get bigger, or healthier. You're just sort of stuck with um, a kind of a small, sick colony. Right. It can be hard to kind of take your losses in the fall, but uh, it might be uh, beneficial, especially if they're healthy. If you have two small, healthy colonies, uh, put those together so you have one larger, healthy colony, and you can get those through the winter and then split them back out in the spring keep going instead of losing two um you can you can kind of uh temper the damage there yeah yeah i agree it's much better to like combine them than to to lose both of them yeah so i think that's a it's an important um important information like just a three percent infestation in august can uh, really has a severe impact on your ability to make it to the other side. I think that's uh, critical for folks to know. Yeah. And so when I, um, when I monitor in August, like we talked about this earlier, uh, I, you know, I'll I'll do some pre-treatment monitoring late July, early August. And usually my numbers are not too bad. But at that time of year, everything in my apiary gets treated just because I know what's coming, right? So I know there's a lot of, there's potentially a lot of mites in the cat brood. And uh, so uh, even if I, even if I monitor and find that my, my numbers look pretty good, um, I'm a kind of a shoot first, ask questions later guy in August. And um, is that a fair approach to take um i i think it's a i think it's a reasonable approach to take um i i'm also sort of now in the mind frame that i uh, i really want my colonies to live right so i know that they're gonna get higher uh come beginning of september um and that the possibility of losing my colonies gets a lot higher if, the longer I wait to treat. Right. So if it's really important to me, um, if, if my philosophy as a beekeeper is my colony, I want my bees to be as healthy as I can get them. So treating for mites is a huge part of that for me uh, because of what I've seen in the field and all of the research. So for me, I, I like to treat. Right, right. So I, I, I like think that's to, a, yeah. you make a good point that it's, it really is a personal decision and it's highly variable from beekeeper to beekeeper based on how they see the world turning, like what's important to them. And so different beekeepers have different um, priorities. And I'm with you. My, my priority is healthy bees and uh, getting them to the other side, you know, through the winter. That's what's important to me. And uh, so that guides a lot of my decision-making in July and August. So um, were, were you guys able to um, – so let me look at the uh, – uh, let's see. So you guys did a, a, a monitoring mid-July to late August and then another one um, – early September to early October. And so I guess were you able to see, uh, I'm sure, uh, were you able to see trends in, in uh, mite numbers? Um, like even after treatment, the treatment was effective. 
you know, did you see spikes uh, after the treatment or was that something that popped up at all? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, that's actually one of, I think, the main benefits of the tech transfer team program that I worked on uh, that collected all this data um, it, and just of monitoring in general, because that's that's really a danger is if you use a treatment um, and it doesn't work properly and you miss that you have really high mite levels still, um, at least if you sample, you have a chance to do something about it because right. we absolutely saw some mite treatments not work. Um, so I, yeah, yeah, we, we did, we did see that for sure. I mean, some of them work great, but others, other ones just, it did not work as well as the beekeeper had hoped it would. Right, right. So that's another good point that I think uh, a lot of beekeepers are missing is that, well, number one, the treatments are not perfect. And just because you apply a treatment, it doesn't mean that you fixed your problem. And it's re it really is important to get back out there, do that post-treatment monitoring, and uh, see what happened. I, I kind of I tell beekeepers, you should assume that your treatment did not work. Go out there and monitor and find out if it did or it didn't. But um, in the process there, think about what your plan B is going to be if your initial treatment doesn't work like what are you going to go to next have that you know kind of plan going hopefully you won't have to use it that monitoring will tell you if you need to implement plan b or, or not but you need to have that plan you know kind of brewing as you're going and uh so i i think people are are putting uh, uh too much faith in the minocides to to work every time the other thing is I, I see, uh, I think, some late-season infestation. I, I think I saw it in my bees this year. Um, I did my post-treatment monitoring in mid-September. Things looked uh, fantastic. I came back a month later. I had three colonies that were at 0% just four weeks earlier are now at 5 6 7%. You know? So uh, if I hadn't done that kind of late-season monitoring, I would have missed those and that would have been a problem down the road. So I think it, it just underscores the importance of frequent monitoring. Monitoring. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, there's been more and more research coming out about how important it is to monitor. Just, and, I mean, even if your treatment works, uh, that late season infestation, either from robbing or drifting bees, uh, can be really important. <laughs> yeah. it, it can really change the mite levels in your colony. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I definitely, so you mentioned Nosema, and I definitely have a lot of questions there. Like, as an apiary inspector, I don't really know what to tell people about Nosema, about if they should treat or not. I'm not sure that the treatment is effective. Um, what do you... What did the research show, you know, what are, what are our risks and, and stuff, things there with Nosema? Yeah, I feel you on that one. <laughs> um, Nosema is definitely not as straightforward as Roa. Um, we did find treatment with fumagillin did not increase the odds of surviving, but we also found that colonies with over uh, a million spores per bee in September or October um, were, less, were more likely to be non-viable in January February. But I will say that was a very small sample size. It was very few colonies that had that. And over half or so of the ones that did have it were had been sick all summer long. Mm -hmm. So it's not 
clear that Nozemo was actually the cause or if it was a secondary um, result of something else going on in those colonies. Um, I will say I've had beekeepers tell me that treating with fumigillin they think has really saved them in a couple of instances. Um, in particular in May, June when their colonies aren't growing. So I, I, I and uh, there's all of these studies that show how detrimental Nozema can be to, let's say, like caged bees, like in an experiment done in a lab. Mm -hmm. It's just harder to tell once you get out into the field um, how detrimental it is, mm -hmm. uh, I think. I think there's still a lot of questions to be asked about Nozema. Right. So when when I'm talking to, to beekeepers about Nozema, I said, well, look, you know, let's uh, sample you know, first, you know, and, and if that, if that monitoring tells us that Fumadillin or Fumadil, Fumadil might be, uh, warranted, then let's, let's go from there. But, um, uh, I, I don't recommend just willy nilly prophylactic, um, use of it. Let's, um, it's easy enough to sample. Uh, so let's, let's do that and, and make decisions from there. And, um, you know, if, if you want to use it, that's fine, but let's, let's sample first. So I don't yeah. know, uh, but I do say, Hey, if you have those spring colonies that look just seem lethargic, they're not building up everything else seems to be in order. Um, that's, those are the sample. Those are the colonies I think we want to sample and look at. Um, but we'll see. So, but I, I definitely, uh, have, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, the, it's just not as cut and dried. And Osim is just not as cut and dried as, for me, uh, Varroa, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then uh, Queen Events, how did, how did that impact uh, their, their productivity? Um, so Queen Events uh, did lead to higher odds that a colony would be non-viable later on. Um so it, yeah, I mean, it, it just really underscores the importance of, I guess, like monitoring your colony and seeing how the queen is doing in there mm -hmm. and understanding if you need to replace her or not. Yeah, yeah, it's got, um, it really did make, uh, the odds were about 2.8 times higher of having a non-viable uh, colony later on if you had a queen event. Right, so if you, if, if you had a queen event during the season, the odds of not being productive were about three times is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, so I, I will say that, so as an apiary inspector in Western North Carolina, I'm dealing mostly with backyard beekeepers, not so much with the commercial guys, a little bit. But definitely among the the folks that I deal with, there are three things that I see that cause the most problems. Number one, Varroa, by far. Number two is queen events, just like you're describing. And uh, number three is uh, feeding, either feeding too mm. much or not feeding enough. But especially on the queen events, I, I think a, a lot of people are saying, oh, I, I had uh, a bad queen. And, and what I see was, or, or what I interpret, you know, when I look at the colony is you had a queen event that you didn't recognize, you know, the, the colony swarmed or superseded and you kind of missed those cues and things went downhill from there. I, I, in my opinion, um, uh, the, a lot of the beekeepers that I'm, that I deal with are claiming that they had bad Queens. And what I see is the queen was probably okay. 
Um, there's a queen event that wasn't managed exactly right, and that's kind of where things uh, went downhill. So um, I'm not sure, um, you know, about queen quality these days. I think it's probably okay, um, but we need to be uh, looking at those queen events carefully. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think queen quality, um, at least for what the research says, isn't any different than what it's been. Um, yeah, and I, I just, yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to know when a queen event happens because if those bees don't replace that queen adequately, you just basically end up with, you know, laying workers and then a dead colony. Right, right. And then, yeah. uh, or, and then wax moths or high beetles and yeah. people say, oh, the wax moths got my colony. I was like, oh, hang on, hang on. That's, <laughs> let's yeah. talk about it. Let's yeah. talk about that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's definitely what I see. Um, so you guys also looked at, um, or maybe this is a, it's a different paper. We looked at uh, assessing brood patterns to kind of get an idea of the of the queen. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we did that as well. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was like a kind of we worked with uh, David Tarpey out of North Carolina State uh -huh. University, um, and it was actually his original idea is to look at colonies with poor brood patterns and then test those the queens in those colonies to see um, if their quality is any different. And so what did you guys find? <laughs> uh, that the quality was not different in the queens. <laughs> um, that it was more likely due to the, the colony environment than itself, uh, the bad brood pattern, uh, than to the queens. Because what we did is we took, uh, well, first off, we sampled queens from both good brood pattern colonies and poor brood pattern colonies and then ran them through like a battery of testing so looked at how well they're they were mated so how many sperm they have in their spermatheca their little sperm storage organ mm -hmm. um and then looked at the number of sperm that were alive uh so the percent viable um we looked at different viruses in the queens um and the sizes of the queens, um, and we, we basically, we didn't find any differences, any significant differences uh, with the queens themselves. Um, so we did, we repeated it in a second year, and what we did is we swapped the queens. So we took a queen from a good brood pattern colony, put her into a poor brood pattern colony, and then put that queen from the poor brood pattern colony into a good brood pattern colony. It's, it sort of ends up as a tongue twister. Right, right. I get it. <laughs> um, but what we would predict is that if the brood pattern was more due to the colony than the queen, uh, then if that queen that was originally from a good brood pattern colony, that her brood pattern would get significantly worse after we swapped them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then vice versa, that queen originally from that poor brood pattern colony, that her pattern would get significantly better after we switched them. Um, and that is indeed what we found. So uh, it, in this case, it was more likely due to the queen, the, the poor brood pattern was more due to the colony environment uh, than the queens themselves, which may, actually makes a lot of sense. Because a lot of things can go into that, that viability of the brood and the health of the brood. Um, all sorts of different diseases. Um, I mean, potentially, like, even pesticides in the comb or just how the comb is shaped. Um, you know, every, a lot of things can contribute uh, to that poor brood pattern. So it's it's not just the queen. It could be the queen in some cases. But 
in ours, it was, it was probably more due to the, the colony. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of going back to kind of where we started early in the podcast, that there are a lot of variables uh, at play um, in, in most aspects of beekeeping. And there's yeah. hardly ever, is there a, a, a nice straight line from, from here to there. There's all kinds of um, twists and turns and, and variables and confounding factors. And it just, um, it's, uh, for me, the bottom line is always, it's complicated. I mean, I, I think people want uh, nice, easy, simple uh, solutions. And uh, that's, uh, uh, I, I, I would love to have simple solutions too, but it, it is, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah. it's hard to get around that, you know, it's just complicated, but um I, th- I um, I'm impressed with the resilience of, of beekeepers. I'm impressed with uh, our our bee researchers uh, like yourself and the and the number and the quality of folks that are that are working on all these issues. And uh, I I am uh, uh, optimistic ab- about the future uh, because of all that. So thank you uh, for all the work that that you do and lead for us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Your anything else you want to cover today while you got the microphone? Hmm. Uh, I guess um, just plain off your, uh, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, like the more I learn, the less I feel like I know. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> or or the more questions I have right. about bees and it is nice especially if you really want your colony to be okay to have a simple answer but it is like a continuous learning experience and I think that's one reason I love beekeeping so much absolutely that's what I tell people that are thinking about getting into beekeeping I say look if you are interested in a lifelong learning process you're going to enjoy this if you are in this to to get cheap honey uh, this is probably not your game, but if you're interested in lifelong learning, uh, you're going to love it. And I, that's the part that I like about it because things are always changing. I'm always seeing something new, learning something new. And, um, it's just different from year to year. Conditions change, you know, viruses change. And, uh, that's what keeps me engaged. And, and I really enjoy it. I feel very lucky to, to be in the game very much so. So, yeah, me too. Me too. So thank you for um, uh, hanging out with me today. That was uh, uh, very enjoyable. I appreciate all the work that you've done uh, over the years. Uh, again, uh, your work has been uh, uh, a, a positive influence on, on uh, me as a beekeeper and uh, continues to, to, to do that for me. So I appreciate it. So thank you for, for hanging out with me today, uh, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much, Lewis. This is my pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) That wraps up this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. Feel free to call me at 919-593-4823 and uh, leave me a message. I'll do my best. Not sure what is in store for episode four yet. I have a couple of different guests lined up, uh, but we haven't scheduled anything at the moment. We're kind of in the middle of the holiday season. 
Uh, one of them will definitely be talking about mites, as we'd like to do here. Uh, the other is an agricultural economist, and so we'll be talking about the economics of beekeeping. So uh, look for those episodes uh, mid to late January. In the meantime, I hope everybody has a great uh, holiday, and uh, we will see you uh, on the other side. Take care.